Hello, and welcome to Milwaukee Rep's Community Conversations podcast. My name is Courtney McInary, and I'm the Director of Community Engagement here at The Rep. Each season, we invite dozens of community leaders to connect the stories on our stages with the stories of Milwaukee through a series of panel discussions. This season, we are excited to present the Power and Money series, where we are exploring how power and money shape individuals, communities, and society. You can attend Power and Money series events all season long by checking out our events calendar online at milwaukeerep.com, or you can join us from the comfort of your home as we stream the panels on Facebook Live. You can also do what you're doing right now and listen in afterwards via our Community Conversations podcast. Hi, this is Never Nelson, the Community Engagement Associate at Milwaukee Rep. Today's panel is entitled Power and Money and Sideshows and is presented in conjunction with our performance of The Chinese Lady. Enjoy. Thank you all for joining us for this panel. My name is Leah Harris. I'm the Director of Community Engagement here at Milwaukee Rep. And I have some questions here that I'm going to ask our panelists. But before I do that, I'm going to ask each of you all to introduce yourselves and just kind of tell us the world that you're coming from. um, And then we'll, we'll go from there. Hi, everybody. I'm Jocelyn Sipaniak-Lease. I'm an assistant professor of film studies and English at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Hello, everyone. My name is Simon Howard. I am an assistant professor of social psychology at Marquette University. Hello, I'm Patty Jones. I'm with the Adaptive Community Approach Program. Hello, I'm Amanda. I'm the head of the ATAC Painting The first thing that I just want to hear from our panelists is just kind of what's sticking out to you um, about what you just saw, if there's any images or thoughts, ideas, things that just kind of is resonating with you in this moment. Yes, I can start. Uh, There's so much to think about with this incredibly rich text and really amazing performances and really gorgeous set design uh, as well. But one of the things that really sticks out for me in thinking about this play and the kind of themes that it presents is uh, how much the history of the United States has been dependent upon visual representations. Um, And then how those visual representations are shaped always depend upon social and political currents and upon the ideologies of those who make them. So that's kind of a major theme that I was thinking about. Um, So as a social psychologist, my main area of interest is stereotype and prejudice discrimination and trying to understand the underlying psychological processes of uh, stereotype and prejudice discrimination. So what really resonated with me with this play, and there's so many layers to it, but the juxtaposition of what was happening then and in what's happening now, and this narrative on dehumanization. And we saw that, I think, most, or that what came through to me was through that metaphor that was used with the boar and the pig, and what made one sort of able to be put on display and sort of consumed, and versus the other one was not sort of fit for that sort of display. And so part of what I got from that metaphor, that analogy was, if we map it onto humans, is that one is sort of seen as less than human. And because of that, then you can put that person in a cage and can be seen as something that is for consumption, to be viewed, to not fully be seen as human, but seen as something Wow, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> oh my gosh, there were so many different things with the um, with the play. I think um, 
I, my background is in working with people with disabilities and um, I have had a great interest in, in learning and understanding the history of disability and um, so this was interesting to me to learn about the culture and especially about the, um, the, the binding of the feet and I think that it's some, I, there's so many different layers, I guess, in, in talking about disability. And, um, and that was something that kind of resonated through, um, through the show um, that I found really, really interesting. I think it was, um, I guess, the, one of the points that uh, is something that I say all the time, and that is, is that humans are naturally curious. And that was, it was brought up in the show. And I thought that that was kind of a, an interesting point to make, almost as though it made it okay for us to come and look at people because we're naturally curious. Um, I think it's what we do with that curiosity from then on um, is what really um, uh, is, is kind of important in our history. Um, so what I took away is that you know, sometimes they didn't have the doors back then. And that's kind of what I hear sometimes, that I don't have the doors and things and the things that I think, you know, some people don't agree. And yeah. I just think it's really interesting, the question. Awesome. Um, so one thing that I think is really interesting um, and just, again, a question I have for y'all. And just so y'all know, we'll um, have a little bit of time at the end for questions from y'all as well. So if you just wanna, you can just kind of put in the parking lot and we'll come back to it. Um, but um, just thinking about this show, why uh, kind of what you were saying about um, how relevant it is to, you know, just what's going on in today's society, um, thinking about why it's important to kind of re-examine our history, uh, to know what our present moment is and what potentially our future could be. Um, I think there's a lot of, just in the, in the writing of the play, I think there's a lot of things to really think about examining in that way. So I'm just curious to hear from, from our panel members what y'all think about um, why it's important for us to re-examine our history and our past um, to think about our current moment and our, our potential future moment. Um, I think for the, um, I've been teaching um, the history of disability for several years um, to people who have disabilities. And one of the things that I felt was really important for people was to understand where they came from. Um, one of the things that I found interesting is that um, people who have Down syndrome, um, people who have Williams syndrome, that there is nothing in the history books that said who, who or where they, they were, or um, did anybody have accomplishments? And um, so I was curious about that, and in the research that I did, I found that there is no reference to people. And um, so I think that that history is important. I think one of the things that I've always said to the people that I work with is that knowledge is power, and you do need to know your history to know where you came from so that you can move forward. One of, one of the things that I always try to instruct my students about when I'm talking about the history of film is that um, the kind of narrative codes by which films make meaning are not just natural, right? They didn't just like 
come automatically when we created um, when we created cameras. Um, and one of the things I want them to understand is that those codes and therefore the way that we tell stories in the 20th and 21st century um, are embedded in specific historical moments and specific historical codes. So if we look at something like um, Birth of a Nation from 1915, right, a really uh, D.W. Griffith's film, which is famously really horrifyingly racist, you know, depicts the Ku Klux Klan as the heroes. It's a really horrifying film. At the same time, it's credited with establishing how uh, films are edited, right? How films tell stories. So if we look back to those ways that we've traditionally told stories um, throughout the course of American history, this is another example, right? This is how we tell stories about immigrants uh, that we've seen here. We can be able to, um, to disentangle those kinds of logics and understand how uh, those ideologies are deeply embedded in all of the ways that we have been telling stories. Um, I think I'll just be quick. So kind of what I was picking up on is, so there was this conversation about like the um, Chinese American uh, Exclusion Act. Um, I'm not sure if I'm framing that correctly, but the language and the rhetoric that was being discussed here sounds very similar to what's being happening right now, especially with Latino Americans. Yeah. Um, or undocumented individuals primarily from like, Mexico. And so listening to that rhetoric, I'm like, 100 years from now, we can see a play like we just saw right now, yeah. but depicting <laughs> Mexican-Americans. Yeah. And so we, we see this repeat of history. So I, as I saw it, I'm like, yes, this is being talked about in this historical context, but it's like I'm feeling experiencing it from a contemporary standpoint too, which I liked that at the end when she said it's 2019 and goes into that monologue like do you see me yeah. and I'm like there's so many people who can be sort of switched into that monologue where we can ask that same question right. um, and I think really specifically for not just those who are like recent immigrants to the United States but those people who have been here historically I guess those who are non-white and we're asking white individuals, like, do you recognize my humanity? Mm -hmm. um, so just kind of flipping back to uh, this idea of, you know, sideshows, freak shows, um, there are things on TLC like the little couple in My 600-pound Life, um, and they're kind of clear indications of, you know, freak shows that are kind of put in our culture today um, and on our on our televisions. So does anyone, does, I'm just curious from our panelists, does anyone want to comment on the idea of, you know, a sideshow and a freak show in, in today's, modern world and, and context and, and, and how that's manifested and, and maybe reinforced in our in our culture? Um, I, I guess I, I um, never thought about um, the uh, uh, the little couple big world that that was um, something of a of a sideshow type of a of a show. I didn't think about it that way until um, until you brought it up to me and I, I can understand it. Um, most recently, and some of you may have seen The Greatest Showman that's been out, um, for years I grew up as, a, as an advocate for people with disabilities, not really having um, high regard for uh, the circus, um, just by sheer fact of you know the, the, the sideshow uh, type of an idea, and also that people with disabilities were always asked to go to um, the circus for whatever reason. And um, so I kind of went into looking at, the, at that movie a little, uh, I wasn't 100% sure I was gonna really like it. I actually enjoyed it. 
um, mainly because I, I liked the way that they um, highlighted the fact that it was P.T. Barnum was wanting to have a, a place for people to, that, that could be curious and that it was okay to be curious. I think the problem is, is that somebody is always taking it to the next step. That curiosity all of a sudden becomes a negative thing, like all the people on the streets saying that everybody was a, um, a freaks. And um, it's, so I guess I, um, my opinions about like the shows, that my six, or the 600, 600 pound life. Yes, that one. Um, I found that they can be somewhat educational. I think we have to be careful as a society that we don't get hung up in um, where all of a sudden people are uh, becoming stereotypical um, in those types of shows. I'm not sure what the rest of you guys think or Amanda. Yeah, I mean, to me, it feels like they're kind of like discriminating them and they're looking at them in a whole different way. And they're missing out on who they are, who they really are, as a human being. And I agree with Tally, you know, I saw that movie too. And it's very, you know, like you said, it's very interesting to see that part of it. So. Well, and I think too, if I could just add too, I think some for some people with disabilities, it is um, nice to be able to see somebody who looks like you on TV. Um, so I do think we just have to be careful how um, how it's presented. So I don't know. I guess I'm torn between. So when I think of it, like yes, there's one part of it in terms of like representation that is nice to to see yourself reflected on on television, um, and so that we know that that could be good in terms of that diverse representation. However, I feel like those people who are consuming this are not necessarily consuming that in the same sort of lens. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I went to, a, I can't remember when this was, but I went to some comedy show, right? And this, and this comedian was referencing the 600 pound life show. Mm -hmm. um, and again, it, it's comedy, so you can sort of imagine where he went with it. But what he was saying was I think having the audience sort of critically examine why it is that they're watching these shows. Mm -hmm. And usually, I mean, if we're looking at that as, as one example, it's usually to body shame, mm -hmm. to, you know, and, and the comments that people are making as they're watching these shows are usually demeaning and degrading. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of blaming the stigmatization of, like, in, in this case, fatness on these individuals. Like, they're responsible for their own sort of stigma um, that surrounds, like, fatness. So it's like, this show isn't necessarily sort of dismantling people's stereotypes. In mm -hmm. essence, it's probably reinforcing them and strengthening them. Mm -hmm. And if so for other shows, I think it'd be the same, a, a similar case. So um, in terms of reality television maybe being the new sideshow since sideshows no longer exist. And so things like this sort of are put on display for, for what are entertainment. Mm -hmm. And less so maybe about education. I just wanted to add a couple yeah, things, but go ahead. No, that's okay. I get really chatty. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll just I'll just yeah. say something quickly about what Simon's saying. I, I think this is a this is a central conundrum about the question of representation in in media. Uh, 
how, what is good representation, right? How are we to understand, is, is just putting somebody on screen, is that enough? Right? What do we need to do to fulfill um, these kinds of requirements? If we, if we just have representation sometimes, do we run the risk of what we saw with Afa Moy, who just ends up representing her entire culture, which is too much of a burden right. to put onto any one person mm -hmm. as well. So. Well, and I just wanted to add too that um, something that we struggle with um, at the, the program that I, I work at, the Adaptive Community Approach Program, um, we are always trying to show people in the most valued and positive light. And I think that's where sometimes we get a little goofed up um, on TV shows and whatnot, that they're not showing people as consumers, as um, teachers, um, as somebody who's doing something just like any other valued person is. Um, and that's, that's something I think that we have to learn um, as advocates, as filmmakers, as people who are um, teaching others to, to try and not have it be where the person with the disability is the spectacle, but rather um, the person that's directing the show or has written the book, um, that type of thing. Um, so I'd love to open it up to the audience for any questions. I heard a lot of kind of noddings and, you know, um, rumblings. So I'd just love to, yeah, go ahead. just the question was about um, kind of the last moments of just in internalizing um, kind of what you were saying about you know representing the entire your entire culture your entire race um, and if you guys had any kind of comments on that and uh, I guess I can start um, so being a member I feel of a stigmatized uh, identity and often being in spaces where you may be one of few to represent that I feel like we often go through this sort of psychological gymnastics where in parts of time we're thinking about, okay, I am in this space and I know that I'm under a microscope. And so anything that I do may be taken as, uh, as something that would be sort of put on the entire race, okay. if, we're, if we're looking at that. And then so it's a burden that we often don't want to take, but in those who do, you may see this internalization as though I did something wrong. Like if I had only did this, if I could somehow have them recognize my humanity, appeal to my humanity, then maybe then we would see some differences in the way and things played out. Um, and I think again, like depending on who the individual is, we grapple with that, whether or not like we even care and it's like, I'm just going to try to live my life in the way in which I want to, but it's very hard to do that when you are in spaces in which you might be one of either the only one or one of very few, because then again, you're going to be, anything you do is gonna be seen as, as it being, in this case, either representative of all Chinese or all black individuals or all Latinos, 
whereas white individuals don't have that same sort of burden, um, they're able to be individuals. Whereas if you're non-white, you don't have that individualist thing, or any other stigmatized identity. Is there a question? Yeah. A couple comments. First, uh, it's really interesting that this play is being done in March, because this is Women's History Month, and then it makes reference to uh, 19, uh, 20, uh, 1919, 1920, etc. When women finally got the vote, and she's she's making reference to us constantly thinking about equality. So this has so much to do with all that inequality that has happened with the Chinese. Now we're seeing that our country is supposed to be made opening up the gates to everyone and how we close down the gates to the Chinese who helped us to build so much of our countries. And now looking at the immigrants and the refugees being held down, being a border, being put up to keep other people out, it, it's just, it's so timely and to have you showing this in March is just painful looking on immigrants and refugees uh, trying to bring education to other human beings to suddenly see this history, you know, the Chinese that you read about. It's so painful. She did such a beautiful job of conveying that message. I was wondering how she made it then after she was left without any job, any income, um, not help uh, from her servant, having her background, being from mobility, that has to be very difficult. And probably at that time, the theater won't provide any pension or anything. Right. So uh, if any of you have read uh, the biography. The, read the what? The, the biography, her, her biography. Oh, no, no, I haven't. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. um, I guess I can say that really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, she, she disappeared. She disappeared? She disappeared. Um, there is a biography that is going to be coming out this June um, about Afan Boy, the first book ever written on her. Oh. And um, she truly, the only historical documentation of her life was actually through other um, diary entries, newspaper articles of people who saw her, saw her in the shows. Um, and speaking of kind of the way that she was made into a spectacle, there were certain types, such as in Charleston, where she was forced to unbind her feet for public viewing, which is the most, I mean, it is, it is the beyond, I mean, humiliating is like not even it, you know, it's, it's like being so degraded in such a deep, deep way. Um, and to the point where even newspapers at that time commented on how displeased she looked at this event happening, things like that. But she was kicked out by P.T. Barnum. She lived in a poor house for years. And after that, she kind of disappeared. And even a Smithsonian researcher who, had been, who wrote this biography on Afan Boy researched her for 30 years all across our, our, the country. Um, she, you know, there's, she literally disappeared. And, you know, the hope is that maybe she was able to go and, and live life, find, you know, find love, find some sort of family of her own, find, you know, but she toured with Tom Thumb for a while. She actually toured with um, 
a pair of musicians for a while. She went to Cuba. Um, she went to, you know, and, and she continued on in this life of spectacle and then literally disappeared. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You had a question? Um, well, an observation and a question also. First of all, it is so wonderful to see Asian actors here in Milwaukee mm -hmm. giving fine performance. Mm -hmm. I love the metaphor of the freak show and of the box and things like that. And, and I think Lloyd did a great job of setting up the, the whole thing like that. I guess my question in the bigger context of society is, for all the people who want to build the wall, is it to keep the freak show out? Is it the freak show? Is Does it mean all film is evil? 
definitely not because <laughs> I study it and teach it. But I think it's really essential to look back at how these things have been constructed over time and then have a more well-rounded and historical approach to understanding how we present people on screen. That's not just about saying, oh, we have to put up somebody who looks like this on screen, then we're okay. We have to look back through all of history, which is something that this play teaches us as well. Um, but that's really the way to move forward is to continually have an eye toward history as well. You had a question? I did. Yeah. Um, so looking through all the things of this play, it's obvious to say that it's a complex play and it has a billion things to talk about, but what I really took from it and the conversation that we're having now is that what we're dealing with is um, a question of the what how to deal with the ugly and the beautiful and how how to present it because both are incredibly important to every type of group or individual um, and so I think that's why Atang's character was so important because he kind of represented this um, sad character that didn't really follow through with what his hopes and dreams were as well as like um, representing some some more ugly thoughts um, due to the way that society had treated him. And that's true of every oppressed group and, and even people who maybe aren't so oppressed. Um, so it's important to see the ugly as well. And how do you do that all the time? I mean, I think this play did it wonderfully, um, but I think it's inconsistently done. And how do you do that more consistently in film, in cinema, um, in writing, that's kind of like my question. That's, that's a really beautiful, really more of a statement than a question. It's a really, really beautiful statement. Um, and you're absolutely right. That's the question of how do we represent individuals? Individuals are not just beautiful. They're not just ugly, right? They're not just good. They're not just bad. They're all of these things together. And that's exactly the kind of questions that we need to ask in order to make um, new art that has um, that has meaning, that is respectful, and that is um, that is progressive for all of us. So I thank you for that statement. It's great. We probably have time for like one more question. Oh, we'll, okay. We'll do we'll do the last three. We'll do here, <laughs> here, and here. It's not a question. It's more of a statement. Sure. I'm sorry, I, I I didn't catch your name in the in the blue. I'm sorry. Me? Yes. Well, I'm Patty. Patty, Patty Jones. Okay. Yeah. Um, so our oldest son has been born with a genetic hearing loss, um, and it's a low incidence disability, but um, as a statement, because you had mentioned it, and it happened in the play too, is to talk about the curiosity of humans and how we manifest that curiosity. And oftentimes, especially when he was an infant or he was a toddler, you could see a little child walking around hearing aids on, it doesn't often happen. So a lot of times kids would walk up or peers would come up and, oh, what's in your ears? What are those? Why are you wearing those? And it was such, innocence and really like we always applaud it like those are our hearing aids they help us hear like we can explain it the awkwardness and oftentimes frustration early on was all the adults who would hear their child asking like oh no 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 don't ask that or try to direct them away or the adults not like staring but not wanting to ask or talk and that's what almost made it more frustrating so it was like that was shameful like we shouldn't talk about that we shouldn't ask about that so even now he's five and it's like when we run across someone who looks different or appears different or he's got questions it's like I try to run through my head all the time how are we going to address that with him how are we going to talk about that because how would you want somebody to ask you about that because um, we've seen 
the positive and, and the negative. And often the positive comes from small children <laughs> and the little ones, and the, the frustration comes from more the adults, you know. So I think that's a really good point, and it, it's funny that, well not funny, but odd that uh, you would bring it up because I just was having a conversation. I also have a, a daughter who has a developmental disability and um, went through the very similar things as, as she was growing up. And still to this day, um, people can are very curious. Uh, but the woman I was speaking with, she has three children that all have the same uh, neuronal migrational disorder. And um, she was telling me that she felt real comfortable when uh, uh, people would come up and say, what's wrong with your kids? What's wrong with your kids? And I always said to her, that just irritates me. I would always say, nothing's wrong with her. Um, if you're curious to know about her, you know, let's get to know each other first. And um, so it was an interesting thing how, how families, and that's the way that you've chosen to, to go ahead and, um, and educate the, the public on, uh, on your child. I mean, I will tell you, my daughter's now 25. It never ends. Um, it, it is constant. Amanda, you can probably relate yeah. to that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I told you what you're saying. Yeah. Um, I actually had healing myself. And I had had teeth are ass, you know, Roddy had hearing aids, like, what do you need that for, yeah. you know, they're ass, but, yeah. you know, you have to get out of that, that's how you learn, too, so, mm -hmm. they don't know, so, yeah. Okay, we had a question, I think, here, and then here, and then we'll, we'll call I just was going to briefly say that it's just so interesting to me how history repeats itself, and how we're all talking about the same thing, and everything, it's just, but also, it, it it, the, the people, the optimists, and I guess the na naive people that where she first was presenting herself as she's educating, and I still think that's a good thing, that those are the people that, and I think of these shows like the 600-pound lady and stuff, maybe some of us are looking at it as a freak show, but a lot of us, I think, are looking at it as education, and I think it's so cool that we're all sitting here tonight mm -hmm. and that, that this is happening and this is progress, and this is amazing, and I'm just so, I'm so blessed to be a part of this show. It's it's phenomenal. <clears throat> Could I just add one other thing? Because I one of the, you had brought up a, a a question or a statement. We were kind of talking about the whole the um, the play as as uh, um, kind of as a whole, and one of the things that probably stood out to me the most, and probably because of my. Um, my background was that she was there as a spectacle. She, I don't think, I didn't get that she really got that right. until her meeting with right. the president. And it hit her that, oh, I'm really not here. They really aren't interested in anything I have to say. And um, I thought that was a really um, poignant part in the, um, in the whole show. I had uh, polio as a child, and I'd worn a brace my whole life. My whole life, and I was in a college class, a geography class, and I sat in the front row, and I was in that class for months. And the <coughs> professor one day said um, to everybody, "Hire the handicapped. They're fun to watch." <laughs> now I could have gone to him individually, alone, and said, "Excuse me, you know." I didn't feel comfortable hearing you say that. I don't want to hear that ever again. I could have done that, I didn't. I could have gone to his boss, I could have you know, complained, but I think we owe it when we hear discrimination to say something. Yeah. 
like when she was with the president, the interpreter should have said, mm -hmm. we don't do that. Mm -hmm. We don't do that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the ways that we can stop this. Yeah. All of this. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you see something, say something. Yeah, yes. sure. right. Exactly. Um, just, are there any final thoughts or anything um, from the panel that y'all wanna leave our, leave our guests with? I guess one thing I would leave with that statement is that I agree that we should say something, but oftentimes it's very hard for us to speak up. And it's like, yes, we should get over that, but sometimes we face real challenges in terms of, I'm an assistant professor, I'm going up for tenure. If I speak out, then I might lose my job. And and not saying like that's uh, justification not to, like I feel like I would still put myself on the line, but if there was someone else who I know is in a different position and they got kids, maybe they're not the one to be the sacrificial lamb in this case, and I'm like, all right, I do, I got no kids yet. And so I see that in that case with, and I'm blanking on the character's name, right? He was put in a, in a tight situation as well because he didn't have any sort of financial backing as well. So putting myself in his shoes, would I would have said something in that condition? Probably not. I probably would have did the same thing. But I do think that those who have power, we all right? have power. We all yeah. have power. But those who may have higher power in terms of the way <laughs> that uh, society is structured hierarchically based yeah. on race and ability, yeah. that someone of your peers may have said, should have said something. Yeah. Or if someone is in the room and something racist being said, that white individual or that white ally should be the one to speak up. Um, that individual who hears something that's anti-gay, someone who identifies as heterosexual should be speaking out mm -hmm. to that person. Because the backlash usually happens to those who are already stigmatized and now you're sort of facing a double burden. Amen. But yes, we should fight the power. <laughs> um, I think that's a wonderful way to end our Friday evening together. Um, I want to thank our panelists again. Thank you so much for participating. Uh, thank you all for coming out for the time with Libby. Thanks for joining us for this Community Conversations panel as part of the 2018-2019 Power and Money series. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media with the hashtag PowerAndMoneyMKE and tag us at MILWREP to let us know your thoughts. We hope to see you at the Rep or on Facebook Live for the next dialogue, but if you aren't able to be there, you can always find our most recent panel discussions here on the Community Conversations podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. And remember, there are more ways to get involved with the Rep, including post-show dialogues and interactive workshops in the community. Visit our website at milwaukeerep.com and click on the Engage and Learn tab for more information. Until then, stay engaged.